Hey everyone, thanks for listening in, really appreciate it. Wanted to let you know about a really cool opportunity. Over the last few months, we've been working with an amazing company, Create Momentum. They work in the peak performance adventure space and together we are taking a small group of people to Thailand to challenge themselves, train in flow states, and learn how to find balance in extreme conditions. Sarah Thompson, our own Wells Performance Head of Coaching, is going to be guiding the eight-day experience. Now, we have carefully chosen two specific action sports, freediving and Muay Thai. And what we're using those sports for is to help you implement strategies used by elite athletes, then to translate those learnings into personal and professional growth while you're at the event, obviously, and then afterwards, We'll talk a lot about how to implement those learnings in your day-to-day life. So if you want to level up, check it out. We'd be honored and privileged to have you there. The dates are December 3rd to 11th, and the resort is absolutely out of control. Um, We're really, really excited about it. The training is totally personalized to your level of experience as well. So all levels are welcome, even if you have never tried either of those sports. And let's face it, we haven't. Uh, so we, we really don't care where the skill level is. We're just learning. We're just trying to get better and have a really cool experience. If you're interested, check out all, out all the details at cre- createmomentum.co. And the link is in the podcast description. There's a few spots left. And we would love to have a few people from the podcast join us on that trip. All right, let's get back to the show. Thanks for listening. Hey, everyone. Welcome back. It's great to be with you. Thank you so much for listening to this episode and for tuning in. We are getting back into the interviews now with some experts on human performance and optimal health. And today I'm really excited to share a conversation that I had with Dr. Sarah Sarkis. She's a psychologist, a writer, and a performance consultant with a private practice in Honolulu, Hawaii. But she's from Boston originally. We get into that. How does one move to Hawaii? That was my first question. Basically, would be my dream. Anyway, uh, her integrated approach is big on science, very low on BS. She works to empower her clients to achieve long-term change and growth, and she uses psychology, neurobiology, and functional medicine to accomplish that. Her blog, The Padded Room, is one of the most popular mental health blogs uh, on the internet right now and is a, as she describes it, a virtual safe place to help you manage the jarring realities of life. You will also be able to check out her monthly essay series called Shrink Wrap via her work with the Flow Research Collective, which is Stephen Kotler's uh, research group all about how to achieve the flow state and all of our uh, uh, group of people that are working really hard to understand that uh, state of flow in a more scientific detail. So we get into a lot of different things in this podcast and we culminate in a very deep discussion about flow states and how one enters into flow states, especially after being in challenging situations. So I'm really excited about this. It's a bit of a technical discussion, but we have a lot of fun with it and I hope that you enjoy it. So without any further delays, please enjoy my conversation with psychologist, Dr. Sarah Sarkis. 
Sarah, thanks for joining me. Thanks for having me. Uh, so we're both just laughing here. Um, just for the audience, we have mutually uh, next door to us construction sites going on. So there's going to be like drilling and hammering and all sorts of stuff as we're having this conversation. It's happening as you're describing it um, in my world. Yes. Okay. Pretty hilarious. Um, just so everyone has some context, where am I finding you today? So I live in Honolulu. Got it. By, and how by does way one move of to Boston. Honolulu? Yeah, <laughs> yeah. By way of Boston, happen? I came to Honolulu. Can you tell us that story? Because I'm actually kind of interested in how one makes that happen. Yeah, Because I live a... in Toronto. So I'm like, how do I get to Honolulu? Right. You're like, what's the game plan? How do we yeah. do this? Um, okay. So I should say, I, my mother has a sister who married um, somebody who was born and raised in Hawaii. Okay. Got so it. I had family and I have family here and family that I was like super close with. We all went to Georgetown together. Right. So, but I had never been to Hawaii until I was in college and I was like rooming with one of these cousins and she was like, Oh, you should come home with me for spring break. And I got here and was like, what is happening? How has this place been kept from me? And, um, so that really started my love affair. That was back in like 1993. Wow. And then for just decades, I just came and visited here every vacation during my doctoral program. I wrote most of my um, dissertation up on the North Shore here. Um, and then I was uh, married and had a kid. And it actually was my husband who, this is like right during kind of like, like, right before the economy crashed and then during. He thought a um, you know, 6,000 mile move would be a great middle finger to the economy crashing. Wow, okay. Yeah, he was like, we really have to go out guns blazing. So uh, we basically, it's actually such a great story. So my husband has this habit where everywhere we go, he starts playing the game, what if we lived here? Right. So what would our life look like, yeah. right? Um, so we landed this one particular time we were landing in the Kona airport and I looked at him and I was so earnest. I had my, our one-year-old with us. And I said, um, I said, could you please on this trip, just let us live in the moment. Like, let's just be Zen together and let's not kid ourselves that we're going to move to Hawaii because we aren't, we live in Boston. He's like, okay. And then that was a Sunday. By Tuesday, he had an interview at Bank of Hawaii on a different island. He had to leave the island we were on. Um, and five weeks later, we were living in Hawaii. Oh, my gosh. That's great. Yeah. Like right in the middle of the downturn as well. Good for you guys. That's super yes. cool. Yes. Uh, I'm really interested. I, I, I'm a scientist, and, and I'm super interested in what you did your research on. Can you tell me a little bit about your doctorate and, and how all of this started? Yeah. Um, well... I went to a doctoral program that's in Washington, D.C. I got my PsyD. I knew I wanted to do clinical work. Um, and at the time, I was really interested in, like, the forensic side of things. Mm -hmm. So I actually did my, um, my work on the developmental origins of sadomasochism. Whoa. Okay. And I sort of looked at much more the emotional sadomasochism that I believe underlies a lot of the more kind of like, um, 
you know, the stuff we see in like popular culture about sadomasochism. Okay. And I wasn't looking at it from the perspective of like, I was really looking at it as what unfolds in the developmental process where we later in life see people who um, in particular have like kind of masochistic traits, right? They'll drive themselves really hard. At the time, I didn't know that it would have anything to do with where I would end up at 44 now. Um, it seemed implausible that I would possibly end up looking at how people thrive because mm -hmm. I was really looking at a, at a forensic population. Um, but over the years, it just sort of evolved in that direction over the decades. That's amazing. Can you take us on that journey? Because I, I sort of do similar things in my research. I look at uh, children who are struggling with chronic illness and then world-class athletes. So I'm, I'm sort of in the same uh, context as, as you, but I, I'd love to know how you ended up making that shift over into thriving out of pathology. Totally. Such a good way to say it. It's my favorite way for people to really grasp those ends of the spectrum, right? Um, yeah. So for me, I was doing forensics and I always had a private practice with like, you know, I guess what we would call kind of the worried well, even though I don't love that expression. Um, but, you know, people who are, in the words of Freud, neurotic, like they're mm -hmm. functioning pretty well, um, but still we all have stuff, right? So I had these two worlds and then I actually had a child and I kind of was faced with this like Sophie's choice. I was uh, faced with like, I wanted to spend all these hours with my baby um, and I wanted to work. And I had to really come face to face with like which route was more, um, which one was like a hell yes and profitable. So at that point I pivoted and I really focused on my private practice. Cool. And um, over time, I'd always sort of been like somebody who was interested in like wellness and health. And then I got really interested in like functional medicine and how you fuel your body. And I just increasingly started to crowd out. Like I had so many interests that were taking me down these paths of wellness that I just crowded out pathology. I didn't I didn't like consciously turn away from it. I just found that there's not enough hours in the day to keep right. engaging and everything, right? And I sort of crowded it out. And as I did it, um, simultaneously, this is over like, you know, we're talking like a 10 year span, but more acutely in the last say five years, I made this really critical unconscious decision. Um, at some point, I must have felt been feeling maybe a little bit like um, not challenged in my clinical work, right? Sometimes you feel like your clients are kind of all starting to look the same. Right. And I just kind of said to myself, gee, I wonder what it would be like if I shifted my statistics from being 75% women and 25% men to 75% men and 25% women. So I sort of gave myself this little challenge, right? Um, it also happened to correlate loosely with like when the Me Too movement was really kind of getting its traction. And anytime I, I'm just somebody who 
is interested in outliers. Like I'm interested in why it's like, well, what's this blip that's happening? Like, why is this suddenly happening here? I guess they're not technically outliers, but you know, anything that's a disruptive process. And so I felt like that would be the perfect time to like really get under the hood of like what was happening in the masculine experience. And so I just started to like say no to female patient, new patients, right? And take male clients. And what I found was, um, and I can't believe I was like in my early 40s before I feel like I really started to be able to like speak to men this way because I have three brothers, I've got a son, I've got a husband, I am surrounded by men. Um, but what I found was their interests and the way they spoke about their interior world drove me further and further into this world of wellness and performance. And um, yeah, I mean, it just sort of all kind of unfolded intuitively as I listened to what was coming up for them. Wow, that's really interesting. Um, I'm actually the opposite. I've ended up being surrounded by women, which is great. Like my entire right? staff is women. Like it's, it's really interesting, right? Because you're constantly um, just making sure that the way that you're thinking is uh, is not only appropriate, but like, is it correct? Is it am I making assumptions here? Am I like, why am I saying the things I'm saying? It's, it totally. forces you to think through everything that you're doing and and try to understand their experience you know, from a really kind of pure standpoint of like, wow, so what's it like to be, for me, it was like, what's it like to be a man and have to orbit in the world of your feelings and your thoughts and, right? Um, and for you, it's a great challenge when it's not what your body instinctively drives your brain and self to do, right? And gender is a huge mediator of that. Wow, that's really interesting. Um, so how have you, where have you landed when it comes to thriving? What does that look like for you? How are we thinking about the, these days? Like where's your, where's your knowledge base at when it comes to really optimizing life and health and mental health and mindset? And I know I just threw in like 65 questions into that, but I'm just like, I'm wondering what, what, is, what does thriving look like for you? Yeah. And just for it's you great. and your clients and your, and your, in your work. Yeah, totally. So that's such a great question. Um, well, I think where I've snuggled in, but of course it's always changing and it would look at the micro level, it'll look different for each client. Right. I always say to my clients, I'm like, I can generally within reason kind of get behind any project you know, any reinvention tour, as long as I know you've come to it from a place of really seeing that you, we always have choices. We're always weighing pros and cons. There is no magic thing, right? Like, oh, if I do this, then those are all just constructs that we kind of make, make up, right? So I can kind of get behind anything, but the general thriving, one of the things I've snuggled into from a, um, you know, as a shrink, because that's what I am, uh, is that I really want my clients to be able to feel all their feelings. I am not actually in the business of happiness. I'm not, I'm in the business of self-awareness and I'm in the business of change. 
If you have things that you want to grow and evolve inside yourself. And that necessitates being comfortable with discomfort. So I don't have anything against gratitude and positivity as movements that are really valuable as one tool in the toolkit. But I would say for me, the people that I work with who I feel like, yes, like this is a marked shift from their previous mindset are, they are much more comfortable just being present in whatever experience they have and seeing that everything has two sides to the coin, right? On the one hand, even painful experiences are helping us grow and change. And on the other hand, you know, it's never quite as bad as, for most of us, it's never quite as bad as we think it might be. Um, so I really want people to have emotional flexibility, emotional dexterity, um, emotional agility, however you want to think about it. That's how I want them. At the end of it, I want them, the end of our work together, I want them to feel like they really developed that muscle. So that's interesting in that we're trying to get people to have a full spectrum of human emotions and to be aware of that. How do you help people to increase their capacity for a greater range of emotions and, and develop that self-awareness that they can actually do that? I'm asking, this is a personal Greg Wells therapy session for the record. So we're not- I love it. Okay. We've moved into that section of the podcast. That was, that was, rapid, <laughs> that was a rapid shift. Okay, here we go. <laughs> I love it. Uh, well, there's lots of ways. And um, some of it depends on kind of where the client's at, right? Like if you have a client who's kind of already in the kind of tunnel of training, right? You can, you can gauge. But I always say to people that um, the biggest bang for our buck basically comes from beginning to develop this capacity to just observe your experience, just literally observe what's happening. Most of us, um, present company included, if we don't challenge ourselves to do that, we're just sort of operating from kind of one unconscious drive to the next. And the great thing is, is that most of the time, the unconscious works in our favor and things kind of turn out pretty good, right? Um, but the, the, that lack of pause between stimulus and response is still there. So the biggest bang for their buck in terms of change is to just invest in a process of self-observation. That also happens to be the hardest thing to do. So I'm, you know, understandably, actually there is only one intervention that ever gets people saying to me, Yes, but like if I give somebody a dissertation to write, if I'm like, okay, I want you to go home and, you know, everybody wants homework. So it's like, I want you to go home and between now and next week, I want you to answer these three questions, right? Like I love the Jerry Colonna questions. I'm a full fangirl. Um, so like sometimes when I can tell somebody's really, they need something tangible, I'll do that. Now look, those questions are just as hard as sitting still with ourself, but there is something about sitting still with ourselves that is really difficult. 
And I will always suggest that and universally everybody will push back on it. I didn't have time. Meanwhile, they'll come in with like a scroll from the Jerry Colonna questions, but they couldn't sit still for 15 minutes. So a lot of times I start there. I start right there. Oh, this is so interesting. Let's look at this. Like, let's really kind of look at this. What do you think this is? This is so fascinating, right? And you just get curious about it. And then you start to get some inroads. You really start to have some new spaces that the person wasn't even aware. They're like, huh, that is interesting. I didn't think about it that way, right? So either way, I'm going to get you. You're either going to sit still or you're going to have to observe why you didn't, which ultimately, if anybody knows me, winds up being way more painful. So um, most of the time, they'll just be like, fine, I'll do it. So that's the biggest bang for the buck. But there's tons of stuff you can do. It's time under tension, right? When we think about from a physiologic standpoint, there's really, it's, it's not a, um, it's not a mystery. Psychological growth happens the same exact way. It's time under tension. How long, if today you can tolerate doing this task for a minute, then tomorrow you try to do 90 seconds. And the day after that, you try to do two minutes and you just build time under tension and our feelings are no different, especially feelings and emotions. They're no different. That's really interesting. So in, from, as a physiologist, our concept is we, we look at time under tension for muscle when you're doing weights, like how long are you actually contracting your muscle against that weight? And you're saying that emotional capacity is exactly the same in terms of our ad adaptation to that stress. Yep. You widen your, um, you widen your aperture to tolerate feelings. Like if you think about when we're using defense mechanisms, our, our tolerance closes proportionally on both sides, right? So that's how you end up. Sometimes you see people with a myopic view or they use one strategy to meet every single problem or they're deeply entrenched in avoidance or they're, right? And they're just, they've gone like this over the decades and you're just trying to stretch that aperture that they can tolerate inside themselves before they engage in the um, sort of, worn neural path that has gotten them as far as they've gotten. Um, and oftentimes when we're, when we're working, certainly within my private practice setting, and now as I expand more to work um, with, you know, clients, like now I'm doing a lot of coaching and consulting. Mm -hmm. um, these are people that are highly accomplished. So it's gotten them really, really, really far. Uh, they might actually come at you and say like, why would I, why would I want to do that? I'm, totally. I'm quote unquote, it's fine. Exactly. And then you say, absolutely. Like you don't have to do it. And you, then you observe even that reaction. So how do they react to change? How do they react when a skill that isn't highly practiced for them is introduced into their sphere? Um, how do they react to feeling like a novice? How do they react to vulnerability? What does their thinking look like in those times? Are they defensive? Are they way too open, sort of too ready to be like, yes, yes, right? <laughs> so you get to observe all of this. And for me, 
every moment is just messages. It's just messages that you're paying me to observe in a very unique way that isn't like, we're not friends. I'm not just like reacting and talking to you like a pal, right? I'm observing you like, you know, Jane Goodall, the silverback, <laughs> you know, like mm -hmm. I'm really observing you in your natural habitat and your most natural state the, the space that you inhabit the longest time in your life, the only one that takes you all the way to the finish line is your skin and bones. And so that's our playground. And, uh, you know, it's, it's awesome. Most of the time, once people are engaged, they're pretty interested in themselves at this mm -hmm. level. Not so egotistically have, either. Right, from that observer it's called that we at the shrinks we call it observing ego but from yeah. different lenses i have found as i've picked my head up and thought to myself oh maybe there's another way to use this degree um and gotten to know more and more people every um industry has their version of that right so i refer to it as an as an observing ego and it's critical i mean it's it's the thing that if you develop that, then you possess it, you own it inside of you, and you can do it and use it the rest of your life, with or without me. Very, very cool. So we have, in the interest of trying to establish thriving, we are looking to expand our range of emotions that we can access and tolerate. We are doing that through increased self-awareness and cultivating the ability to observe ourselves a step to which is sitting in silence, which by the way is incredibly difficult. Oh, um, I love brutal. that challenge. It's like, just mm -hmm. sit with yourself. And people are like, what do you mean? I'm like, sit with yourself for 10 minutes. Can you just sit with yourself? And they're like, I, I don't know. Like, no, 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 I want about. real homework. <laughs> yeah. I'm like, oh, you go do this and check <laughs> yeah, back to me about right. real. <laughs> Let's see how we're doing. Um, and then you mentioned something which I think is really interesting, which was creating space between stimulus and reaction. I assume that that is a big part of this, uh, an outcome of this practice of, of, of observing yourself and be building that awareness and capacity that now you can begin to control those reactions a bit better and shift them into maybe responses instead of reactions. Is that a fair? Yeah, I mean, my particular person hones in on the word control because for some people it's surrender, for some people it's a greater sense of self-regulation, but usually when I get deep under the hood, people are white knuckling aspects of self-regulation versus look mom, no hands. Um, so a lot of times con control gets a little bit like sticky for people, um, but yes, the general gist is that through observation, you actually just develop more flexibility. And also, when we begin to observe at this level, we also get to see like, oh, we get to start to connect things, right? So it's like, oh, this is really interesting. When you felt, let's take an example. When you felt vulnerable, look at what your thoughts went to, right? And maybe the thoughts went to like, you're an idiot, you're weak, you're right. Or, but they can span, you know, everybody's different. But you really get to start to see the different facets of what we call our self, right? We have a bodily experience. We have a cognitive experience. You, you dwell, right, in the physiological experience. 
we have a psychological experience. We have all these layers that we experience ourselves, And this um, strategy, among many others, right? I mean, this is just an example, but this strategy really allows us to start to pick that apart. And then usually the process of observation and awareness kind of takes care of itself. So over time, you don't even really have to use the word control. And I do replace control often with the word self-regulation mm -hmm. because that seems to have, um, it, it, it feels to me to be both morally and ethically neutral and also just descriptive of the process that's happening inside the body and the brain and the mind. Yeah, that, that's worth the price of admission for me. Like that's big, that's a huge idea. It's like shifting from the need to control everything towards self-regulation via awareness and managing your mindset, managing your emotions to create an optimal outcome. Mm -hmm. Got it. Absolutely, yeah. And you also talked about what happens, let's say you're feeling vulnerable, as you mentioned, then you get into the self-talk of, let's just say, I'm an idiot. Um, I've never done that before, of course. Of course never not, please. beat up on myself like that uh, today. And um, right. this morning. This morning, right before I got on this call, during this call. So um, <laughs> I'm really curious about how self-talk affects our mindset and what we can do. First, I, I, now that we're observing it, you begin to actually become aware of how you are speaking to yourself. Quite often we speak to ourselves in a way that we would never speak to others. It's abusive, million, let's be clear. Yeah. Like, so like how your does children that... would be taken from you. If you had children, like CPS would come to your house <laughs> and they would visit and they would say, I'm sorry, you're actually unfit because you can't speak to a, a being this way. Yes, exactly. <laughs> what is that all about? What on earth is going on with that? Yeah. In the interest of full disclosure, I am my first patient in that yeah. regard. Um, so my experience as a human um, and as a shrink is that First of all, most of us are completely unaware. We are literally unaware that the conversation is happening. You have, it's like, be careful what you allow to become normal. The noise in your head becomes so normal that you just are like, oh, I, don't, I, wasn't, I wasn't thinking anything. And then this more you're at it and you really start to just be super curious about their micro processes and you listen for, I always listen for um, in their content because sometimes you're trying to think about process and sometimes you're really focused on content and content gives us a lot of treasures, especially in the like offhanded things that people mm -hmm. say, the things they say they're saying just as like a, like, uh, is, you know, just like being funny or just like people have speech patterns. They have phrases they'll say over mm -hmm. and over again. I always ask, do you have a motto in life, mm -hmm. right? You're trying to hear, okay, what's going on behind what you say? And what I find routinely is that this is the crux of mindset. Nobody can thrive when the constant noise in the background is about how your, whatever version it is, right? I mean, we could go a million miles an hour and not cover what the versions are. It's like, you're an idiot. 
you're going to fail. You're unreliable. You're so stupid. You're not smart. Everybody's got something. Um, and when they start to, when you start to really see that and you actually, like I always tell patients, I tell the people that I work with, I say, um, the goal is not to change this. The goal is to observe it because there is a piece of, so as a therapist, when I'm doing like deep therapy, deep insight oriented work with certain people, um, we are really unpacking those narratives, those tapes that play in the background because they are the remnants of trauma. And I follow the Gabor Mate theory of trauma. Trauma is not what happens to you. It's what happens inside of you. Hmm. And so we really can then go and help the person move through the scar tissue that's associated with emotional trauma, just like physical trauma. When you're working through deep scar tissue inside the physical body, it takes time. But usually just the working on it frees it up. You don't actually have to consciously be like, I need to fix this, right? It does clear itself. So, uh, you know, the psychological world really follows all those same principles. And most of the time, just the capacity to observe it. I always, this is my famous phrase. I say, oh, wow, did you hear that again? Did you hear that's, you know, and that by that point, we'll sort of know what their internal saboteur is and everybody's got one. Uh, most of the time it's unconscious until it's not. Once it's conscious, it can never be unconscious again. You can deny it. You can pretend you didn't know it, but you can't actually not know it. So it's the one way road. Now, once it's conscious, I'll say, oh, do you hear that? Like I often refer to people that have perfectionism. I say, you know, it's actually not perfectionism. That's what we name it. To make it hurt less. It's actually shameism. People that are orbiting around perfectionism have a deep reservoir of shame that if they're not perfect, they're not worthy. And if they're not worthy, they're not lovable. And this fuel source can drive people for decades. So then I'll say, oh, did you hear that shameism? There it is again. And then I'll say, that's an injury. Be kind to it. That's interesting. So now we get to move into compassion, even if it's compassion for the self as a tool to begin to unlock some of these insights into how to actually build our mindsets to be better. So you've noticed the self-talk, maybe it's positive, maybe it isn't. If it isn't, then we, we are observant, but then we begin to build compassion for ourselves and or for for others. And I assume that forgiveness fits in here as well, perhaps. For sure it does. You know, they are often partners in crime, right? And yeah, the compassion's a big piece. Um, and usually your level of compassion that you have for yourself will often mirror the level of compassion you can access for others. And so as you heal your own injuries that you didn't see them as injuries because you barely realized you were talking to yourself this way but as you acknowledge that like and I, I just always say like remember that is an injury like if this was happening in your child you wouldn't be like oh get over it move on right right it's like um so you know and and over time people really I mean the human, we are really amazing animals. And 
we really do have a tremendous capacity for healing, resiliency, and change. It's why we like live in houses now and right. We were constantly refining the process of being what, what we're capable of. And the same is true of the interior world. We can keep refining it. We can keep on honing our capacity for an internal, internal shifts. You know, non, I mean, they, they result in behavioral changes but it's not attempting to change a behavior and working backwards. It's trying to change the real core intersections and then watching that the behavior unfolds from there. That's really interesting as well, because quite often I'm sure people are, are always thinking about behavior change when in fact, it's probably five steps back from that, that will result in that behavior being a little bit different. A hundred percent. And by the way, we are, you're up in Canada. Correct. Okay. So down in these parts, um, we have a healthcare system that is predicated on behavioral changes. And so we're getting reinforcements all the time, especially in the mental health field that like, well, what are the discernible behavioral changes, right? And it's not that behaviorism and all of the very important elements of behavioral change aren't a key component, but behaviors are often the, our behaviors are the reflection of this huge iceberg that is being sustained from all these internal networks. And then the behavior is what peaks through the water. And you're like, oh, there's that behavior. Okay, right? But if you really trace that behavior back, the origins are in these, what I consider to be sort of existential crossroads. They're related to our neurobiology, they're related, which is related to our upbringing. Um, you know, it's very complex, very yeah. fascinating. Super fascinating and, and even multi-generational because we're learning now that whatever happens actually changes your DNA and you pass that on to your progeny. Totally. I love that. I mean, we'll have to have, we could have a whole separate conversation <laughs> on epigenetics. Yes. And I mean, it's one of my favorite topics. I was just this summer at Canyon Ranch with a colleague of mine and we did multiple nights on um, epigenetics, the psychology of epigenetics, how it changes us. And it, it creates intergenerational patterns of attachment. That's what shrinks call it. And I think it's called, um, transgenerational epigenetic uh, inheritances is what like geneticists would call it, right? So same thing, different language, just like observing ego was what we call it, but in multiple domains, there's other things that are getting at the same exact principle. And you're totally right. You are a hundred percent right that that's how complex our mindset our mindset impacts our genetics over Isn't that amazing? the long arc. It's think about that. Like every day, what you think changes your, you, you at yes. the DNA level yes. and you can pass that on. 
like your thought isn't just a thought bubble on a meme. Like your thought sends messages to your brain that release certain neurochemicals that then interact with your cells and the very way that your body metabolizes the world inside of itself and around itself. And it is astounding when you realize that. And then you can start to control mind, body, emotion, spirit through your physical actions, through your mindset, through your emotions. That's where all of this starts to come together. And really, if you do the hard work of looking inside, that's that you the prerequisite. Right. Yeah. You've actually got to do the work. This is going to magically appear, unfortunately, with a drug. I tried um, a lot okay. <laughs> to uh, make it be magical. Like yeah. I am more human than anybody. I was like, surely there's a shortcut. There's shortcuts everywhere. Right. Yeah. Maybe with some DMT or something like that, which I'm not willing to try just yet. I'm not but, either. Um, I'm a purist. So when we think about doing all of this, we're now landing in a place where everything's coming together. Things are beginning to work really well. We're untangling all of these knots and we're getting some awareness about how we're thinking and how we're speaking to ourselves and opening up potential for better health and better performance. The other area in which you do some work, which I am absolutely fascinated by is the moments when we are abs when we are thriving, which have been described as flow states. And I'd love your insight on that in your work with the, the flow genome collective, since we've sort of talked about the genome a little bit just, just now, like where, explain to me what flow is, what's your thinking in and around flow? How can we get into flow a little bit more often? What's going on in your world in that space? Yeah, it's great. So yeah, I'm working with Stephen Kotler and his group of people at the Flow Research Collective. And um, I'm really starting my, you know, I've been doing consulting here and a little bit sort of distance, but with Stephen, that's sort of specifically what I'm doing. And he, um, is you know the flow guy and he is like a, an encyclopedia on it so the way that i approach it and how i found him was really through that intersection when i shifted my career 75 men 25 women and men kept talking about when they talk about their feelings they talk about it as performance I want to feel good. I want to perform better. I want to have more energy. They talk about it in a real tangible way. So it forced me to widen my aperture and, and I, you know, stumbled upon one of Stephen's great books um, and then started to become really interested in and realized too that I was somebody who was my whole life from, from young to current day utilizing that type of brain activity, which is, it's available to everybody. It's free for the most part. And I didn't even know that. I didn't call it that, right? But I was a long distance runner for a long time. That's what I was doing. I love writing. When writing um, feels really good, that's the state you're in. Um, when you're working with a client and everything is clicking, you're now in a um, group state of that experience. So, and the way I try to help people think about flow, because sometimes I think flow can like feel and be spoken about like esoterically. So, you know, there's a whole definition and I'm not the gal to, to um, 
to be spewing off on that out of the top of my memory, but there's like nine specific things, right? But let's sort of take it and make it a really um, digestible, practical thing for people. When we talk about flow, we're talking about getting into either micro states of flow, right? You get 20, 30 minutes of real solid productivity. You create, creativity is flowing, adjacent ideas are possible. Um, you're moving out of kind of the more rigid, calculated thinking that's very linear. And all the way up to like huge flow states like Burning Man. If we I take must go those ends, right? <laughs> never been. <laughs> never, if you get an extra ticket, let me know. We can right. meet there. Um, if we take it on that spectrum, I talk about it for people as an opportunity to practice the skills that lead to that. And there's really practical skills that lead to that, like. Um, and a lot of it is boundary setting, like um, carving out 45 minutes once a day. I suggest doing it in the morning if your schedule permits, but if it doesn't, don't let that stop you. That, don't let that be, be the excuse on why you can't do it. And if you latch on to that, oh, I can't do it in the mornings, look at that, observe that, how quickly you're willing to be like, oh, well, this won't work for me. Um, but I suggest you do it in the morning, 45 minutes where you're really tapping into self-regulation. So a little bit of breath work, a little bit of stillness. And stillness is an interior state. You can do a walking meditation. You can do yoga. You can, right? But it's an interior state of observation and stillness. And then you are setting like what, what are you going to do for this next chunk of time? Now, some of us have jobs, right? Like jobs that you have to go to an office. I certainly am beholden to all of my patients, right? My writing time is unstructured, but otherwise I'm beholden to the same type of schedule. But, you know, you set clear goals and intentions. Now you're, now you're focusing your brain on something. And part of the way that the, the big component to getting into flow, even microstates of flow, is that you want, it's gotta be a challenge. You've gotta be doing something that's pushing you. You're not doing something that's so easy, you're prone to boredom and mind wandering, but you're not doing something so crazy difficult that you've now got your midbrain involved and you're panicked. You're in that channel, right? That challenge channel where you can I like that really, term, the challenge channel. That's interesting. Yeah. yeah, it's like a channel that you can kind of, you know, and you can swim in that channel for a stretch of time. And that is really, it is incredibly beneficial to our psychology, we feel better. And by the way, we feel better because the neurochemicals that get released help us feel better, right? It's not just psychological. Um, and we are more productive. We are more creative. We feel more connected to ourself. And that is the first relationship that we must be connected to. We cannot actually think that we can be detached from ourselves and connected to others. That's interesting. So 
that's how I got into it. And it, it served me well because this is people that are really high achieving. This is a conversation they're willing to have. And I'll get content from any conversation. So as long as I can engage you, I'm going to be getting something that's going to take us basically where I want to go, which is I want to go deep inside to your own experience of yourself. So if I'm hearing this right, if I want to get into flow states more often, I need to calm myself down, get very centered, uh, do the self-regulation works so that I'm aware of my body, mind, emotions, uh, set my intentions for what it is that I'm trying to do and what it is that I'm trying to do shouldn't be easy, shouldn't be super hard. It should be roughly somewhere in the middle. It's interesting in, in physiology, it's, we've, we've actually discovered that it's slightly above the second threshold and when you're doing exercise. So it's not easy, but it's right when you're starting to breathe hard and in your exercise, it appears that that's where people drop into flow. So that would be- So correct. that's exactly psychologically the same exact principle. Very cool. Same exact principle. And the great thing is, is that when you give them a task like that, because people love tasks, um, for me, if, if I'm in the sidecar observing you, it just gives us so much content. Because on every turn on the dial, you get to observe where it works for them and where they feel rudderless or they go off the rails or, and flow, you know, the fl flow is one of four cycles in the brain. So we do struggle, release, flow, recovery. And every cycle follows that same rhythmic cycle. And so struggle is that challenge skill ratio. You've got to like, so I'm doing all this writing for Stephen Kotler, right? And, and um, I, I, you know, I still am waiting for him to figure out that he's pulled the short stick on this because he's been willing to edit my writing, which feels like I'm in a master's program. Um, and I just love it. I'm just like, I'm like, when is he going to realize that he pulled the short straw? Um, but so, uh, the struggle for me in that phase is I have to read about, I have to read about three full books for every thousand words he wants me to produce. Cause that's the level of, um, of writing that he wants. And so that's a, um, when, when we talk about struggle, that's the struggle phase for me there. I'm taking in tremendous amounts of information and there is friction because it's a, um, it's a information acquisition phase, right? Got it. Yep. And, and then it's like, you know, it's sifting, the brain is sifting, the unconscious is working and it's almost like a bottleneck, right? It's like, right, coming in, and then you can get focused. Then you, then you have this release stage, and then you have flow. After flow comes recovery. So recovery is where, when we're talking about it from a neurochemical standpoint, is like the brain is recovering from this state of flow. And when we really understand these four cycles, you'll see it over and over again. And there's like certain tricks like Stephen... I thought something brilliant that he said in one of one 
time when I was working with him was he said, with your writing, I'd never thought about this. I always rode the train till it stopped, you know, till you're wordless. He's like, no, stop 20 minutes before that happens. So you're leaving, first of all, you're leaving on a high note. So psychologically the next day you're not returning like, oh, I was, you know. Um, he said, but also you're not burning out the, the, the neurochemical process that's happening, right? So these little strategies are, are helpful, but they're more for somebody who's like, you know, really been practicing. If you're listening and this is a new concept, um, just start small. Start with that tomorrow you're going to wake up and I wouldn't even ask you to do 45 minutes. I'd ask you to start at 15 minutes. It's time under tension. If you can do 15 minutes for a week, more days than not, I purposely didn't say every day, um, then go the next week and do 30 minutes. Of meditation or just self-regulation work just to start the day. Sure. Which increases your ability to potentially later on drop into flow at critical moments. Is that correct? Which really means to be present. Got it. Right. It's like you're going to be present and, and to learn to be present and, and use what is available to us when we're truly absorbed in the present moment doing what we're doing. And that can that. change across industries, right? Yeah, it applies to absolutely everything. Sports, music, drama, business, academics, totally. all of it. Yeah, personal it really life, does. Everything. Personal life is a huge one. Yeah, just be present with the people that you love. That's a huge accomplishment in your day. If you can just And really that. hard because it also means put your phones away. Yes, at dinner, <laughs> right? Every conversation, just think yes. about it. The message that that sends is so incredibly powerful. Yes. Yeah. Sarah, we could go on and on and on and on and on and on and on. I think I we'll have to do part two so we can dig into epigenetics. But I love it. I really appreciate Kindred the fact spirit. you took so much time with me. How can people connect with you online and learn, learn a little bit more about your work? Yeah, so I have a website. It's drsarasarkis.com. I'm sure if you put it in the show notes, it's, um, I won't have to spell it out. Yeah. But um, if you Google me, you'll find me. Also, uh, and I have a blog there that... Um, I contribute to a lot now. Most of the contributions are coming by way of my writing with Stephen Kotler for his newsletter. So you can also go to the Flow Research Collective website, sign up for his newsletter. We're write, he writes something every month. A colleague of mine does an awesome, like, tangible video clip on like a tangible practice to do. Um, and I get to write on a topic of my interest every month. So I'm like a kid in a candy shop. You can sign up there. Um, yeah, those are good places to start. Amazing. Sarah, thank you so much for taking the time with us. I really appreciate it. We'll do it again. Thanks for having me. All right. I hope that you enjoyed that episode and that the banging in the background wasn't too annoying. There it goes again. So we were literally doing construction on either side of the Pacific as we did this interview and uh, kind of ironic that that's what's going on in the background as we're talking about constructing better mental states. Anyway, hope that that was helpful. If you want to check out Dr. Sarah Sarkis online, you can do so at her website, drsarahsarkis.com. That's S-A-R-A-H-S-A-R-K-I-S. And she's on Facebook, Twitter, 
and LinkedIn and Instagram as well. All of those links are available at her website. Thanks for tuning in. I hope that was helpful. If this was helpful to you, it would be amazing if you could share this episode, if you could subscribe on uh, iTunes, and if you could even better leave a review. Thanks so much. Look forward to seeing you again next week. Have a great one.